1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will, we will be changed. For this perishable 53 must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word that is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It brings comfort. It brings encouragement. It ministers grace, but it also kind of afflicts us if we're a little too comfortable. It stirs us. It reminds us what we should be living for. It tells us that uh, the temporal is not all there is. There's a realm uh, way beyond what we see every day, way beyond what many of us can focus on the most. And it is a reality that there is a new age coming. New heavens, new earth, new us. Uh, a, a golden age, as some of the, the Jewish writers might call it. Uh, a, a day where uh, something that I think there's been a longing in our hearts. And uh, that longing will be fulfilled as you come again to rescue your people, to judge the world, and to create new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. We're excited about that reality, Father. Excited to be on the winning side, the side of victory in Jesus. Pray that you would encourage every soul as we study your word. I pray that you'd lead us by your Holy Spirit and give us ears to hear what you would say to your church for your glory and all God's people said. Amen. In the name of Jesus, amen. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We, we definitely... We could say we live in a death-denying culture, and certainly that's true. And maybe another way to think about it is we live in a death-defying culture. What I mean by that is that I think that many of us believe that we will be the person that defies death. We'll, we'll beat it somehow. It may not be something we say to others, but some, some of us may be thinking that in the back of our minds. This phrase, that won't happen to me. Have you ever heard somebody go through something, you know, uh, something maybe they saw in a news report and they say, uh, then it happens to them and they say, I never thought that would happen to me. I never thought that would happen in our neighborhood. I never thought that would happen to this person. Well, I think somehow we bring that into the reality of our mortality. I think we, we know, deep down we know it's true, but we kind of think that maybe we'll wiggle out of it some way. 
Well, I have a mystery to share with you. There is one generation that is going to wiggle out of it. It's going to be a final generation that will not see death, but they will be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. Now, there's some different views on the timing of that. I hold a view that everything will happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so my view teaches that this will mean that that generation who doesn't die will have experienced great tribulation nonetheless. If you're in the pre-trib rapture camp, then you may have a different view. That's not my view, and I don't have time to get into it right now. But I hold a view that's pre-wrath. We are not appointed to the wrath of God, but doesn't mean we'll be spared tribulation. And I believe all this is going to happen at the second coming of Jesus, when Jesus Christ comes in his glory, he's going to rescue his people, and then the wrath of God is going to come. We've got affirmation of that in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15. If you take a peek with me, it says, he's speaking about the resurrection. He says, but each in his own order, 1 Corinthians 15, 23, Christ, the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ, what's your Bible say? At his coming. So, the when of the resurrection, and this would include the rapture, will be at his coming. And this has to do with the end of the age. It has to do with our own mortality. It has to do with a lot of the deep questions of life. Uh, we know we have industries in our world right now that are, you might say, death-defying. Uh, one writer says, physical fitness and diets. Some of these industries have become religions. While it's true that we can enhance and perhaps even prolong our life uh, by eating well or exercising, etc., these things cannot save you. The greatest athletes and the healthiest individuals in the world meet the same end as the laziest and unhealthy people in the world, close quote. You know, you've heard about people who they run marathons their whole adult life and they drop dead at 55 and then someone's smoking cigars and drinking alcohol and they live to their 99. There's no guarantee in this life. It's the same end for everybody. This is something that Solomon in Ecclesiastes lamented near the end of his life. He's trying to warn young people. He said, the same event is the fate for both the wise and the foolish. And he kind of says, why have I tried to be wise my whole life, although Solomon made a share of mistakes, because the same event happens to the fool as it does to the wise. And then uh, Solomon uses that word vanity, vanity, vanity. If we're all going to die in the same way, what vanity this is. Once you turn to the book of Job, it's just before the book of Psalms. We're studying Job on Wednesday nights. I want to show you something that Job said in the midst of his suffering. This is Job 14, right before the book of Psalms, Job 14. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. You guys know that Job has been through all this terrible calamity. He lost his family, lost 10 children. Uh, the house collapsed on them. Job didn't know that there was a battle or a discussion or a warfare happening in heaven. And he wasn't able to see that. We're able to see that. And so Job had all these terrible things happen to him. And he was asking all these deep questions because he was a righteous man and suffering nonetheless, terribly suffering. And he writes these words. He says, for there is hope for a tree, Job 14, 7, when it is cut down, that it will sprout again, and its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground and its stump dies in the dry soil, 
Job 14, 9, at the scent of water it will flourish and put forth the sprigs like a plant. But man dies and lies prostrate. Man expires and where is he? As water evaporates from the sea and a river becomes parched and dried up, so man lies down and does not rise. Until the heavens be no more, he will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. And all God's people said, bummer, Job. Now, I will tell you this, that there are groups out there that try to get their theology about soul sleep and life after death from the book of Job and even verses in Ecclesiastes. And you have to be very careful uh, because sometimes these books are recording the honest thoughts of the individuals, but the thoughts of the individual are not necessarily true. They're just being truly recorded. Everybody understand the difference? So like a book of Job where his view of life is skewed by his suffering. He doesn't know everything that's going on. You can't pull your theology about life after death from these sections in these books. It's accurately recording the truth of a statement, but not saying the statement is true, theologically speaking. All right, go on. 13. Oh, that thou would hide me, wouldst hide me in Sheol. That could be the grave here that thou wouldst conceal me until thy wrath returns to thee. He felt like he was under the wrath of God. That thou wouldst set a limit for me and remember me. And then Job asked this most fundamental question, if a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle I will wait until my change comes. If you have an ESV, it says renewal. NIV, the same thing, until my renewal comes. The Hebrew word here for change or renewal is alternation. It's a lovely word, says one writer, for resurrection. It's a word that combines uh, newness or renewal with continuity, the idea of re, so renewal. And there's a continuity between what dies and what rises. We've been talking about that as we look at the resurrection body. And what we do see, if you turn to Job 38, is that when Job laments something, then he, there seems to be in many of the sections of the book of Job, he'll kind of like talk about all this bummer stuff like death is the end, it's over, and then all of a sudden there'll be a glimmer of light. But I know I have an advocate on high, or I know my witness is in heaven, or I know my redeemer lives. And he'll kind of go back almost like the psalmist does. He'll go total bummer. Have you ever been there before? Stinking thinking, it's over, my life is over, nothing's going to work, everything's dark. And then all of a sudden, somebody sends you a text with a Bible verse, and you're like, oh yeah, that, I'm a Christian, that's what I actually believe. <laughs> we, we go through that, right? So look at Job 38. God is addressing Job, and uh, he says these words, this is verse 17. He says, have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Now, this is a verse to kind of balance the fact that Job didn't know what lied behind the gates of death. His conjecturing, along with his so-called comforting friends, were just man's attempt to figure out things that are beyond us. But we don't have to guess at these things. We have fuller revelation in the rest of the Bible. We have the revelation from Jesus himself. Jesus said there is a resurrection. He said, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. He said, you will see me again. And because I live, you will live also. 
So we do know that there is life beyond the grave. Uh, back to 1 Corinthians 15. Let me share a story. This is from Fyodor. I think his name is Dostoevsky. He was considered one of the greatest Russian writers. He was arrested in 1849 for plotting against Tsar Nikolai I. He was sentenced to death, then blindfolded and taken out in freezing weather to be shot by a firing squad. At the last moment, his sentence was commuted to exile and hard labor. After his release from prison in 1854, he abandoned his revolutionary ideals and became a Christian. He once observed, quote, the certainty of death fills us with dread, but the uncertainty of what follows death is the most dreadful anguish in the world. It is the uncertainty and fear of death that Paul has in mind when he writes about the sting of death, says this writer. And I want you just to imagine, some of you may have seen the movie, I think it was Tom Cruise's in the movie, and they, they're trying to take out Adolf Hitler, and, the, and they, it fails. And remember, he's taken out, and he's, he's going to be executed by a firing squad based upon a true story. Uh, I can't remember the name of the movie right now, but what was it called? Valkyrie, Valkyrie that's right. And it's, it's, a, it's a pretty incredible movie to think about. You kind of find out that in Nazi Germany, there were a lot of people who did not agree with Hitler, and they were actually trying to execute Hitler uh, and take him out for what he was doing to the country. Well, anyway, um, I, I mentioned that because this same writer that we just heard about is he has the hood on, firing squad, getting ready to kill him. And you can imagine what thoughts are going through your, your heart and mind. And what he said the most fearful thought was, was not necessarily the moment that the bullet would hit and he would die, but what came after death. Interesting insight. Since he became a Christian after that event, if he would have been shot and he would have died, he would have perished without Christ. My friend, eternity is too long to be wrong about your soul. Don't play Russian roulette with your soul. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains not a city block, not if he can buy his own island, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul. So many people putting off the most vital decision of life. And for what? Well, I want to have five more years to do what I want to do. I want to be able to party it up. I want to be able to do this or that. But just think about that very statement is a foolish statement. Because being a Christian is not just an insurance policy for the other side. It's also about life during life. It's also about living your life for what will truly last. Now, this is verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15 as we break into verse 1. Thought you might laugh at that, but anyway. Now, <laughs> I say this, brethren, 1 Corinthians 15, 50, that flesh and blood, that is a Jewish idiom for, or a saying that is, the current fallen human body cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable, that's us, we, have, we are perishable, we have a uh, shelf life, if you will. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, we began to dug, dig this out last time, and we were saying in the Greek mind last Sunday, it was a weird thought. In fact, it was kind of anathema to them. They, they, thought, they said, no way 
for a body to rise. Their, a lot of their thought was in Greek dualism. It was escaping the body. So when you die, you escape the prison of the body. They began to hear about the resurrection. Even Paul, when he's encountering the Stoic and Greek philosophers, and he's up on Mars Hills, Mars Hill debating them. It's when he brings up the resurrection, even among the Sadducees and some of the religious leadership, that they begin to scoff and snare at him. And the Greek mind said, no way. I don't want to rise in my physical body. I want to escape my body and be kind of in a spirit world or a spirit life. And some of you have backgrounds where that's what you were taught, that maybe the afterlife is just simply a spiritual realm. Maybe it's just kind of these ghostly kind of figures. Or maybe even the resurrection is not really physical. It's more like a spiritual thing, like a non-body kind of thing. But the jump that they were struggling with is if the resurrection is true, and that's Paul's point in the whole of 1 Corinthians 15, then how does one make jump the jump from the current state to the kingdom of God in a body like the one that we have? Even if it's resurrected, how do you make that jump from this reality to that reality? Uh, in fact, they, they might say, I don't know how that's even possible. And Paul enlightens us. He says, well, it's true. The current fallen human state, flesh and blood, in quotes, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But there's going to be a change. And that's what Paul is saying in really the bulk of the chapter. There's going to be a change from the mortal to the immortal, from the perishable to the imperishable. You are going to be, there's a continuity between the body that dies, goes into the ground and burial, and rises, uh, from the seed plant analogy, we got the analogy, the illustration from plant life or uh, botanical processes. We got it from astronomy, different types of bodies for different types of existences, the sun, moon, and stars. We got it from animal life, different skins for different uh, habitats, whether it be a reptile or a fish or a bird that flies in the air. They have different body types for different habitats. Well, that's what Paul's been saying. Your body in the resurrection, it will be you in the resurrection. There's a continuity between what dies, like the seed of a plant, and what rises. But the seed is just a, uh, even though the plant comes from the seed, imagine the seed goes into the ground and this beautiful plant comes out. That's kind of this picture here. The body goes into the ground. A dead body, if you've ever seen a dead body, it's, it's hard to take. Uh, there doesn't look like there could be any life there, and that's kind of the idea of the seed. And the body that will rise on that day will be this beautiful, glorified body having a connection to the seed or what died, but new, uh, new in uh, every aspect, if you will. And so, behold, 51, I tell you a mystery. This is a sacred secret. The Greek word mysterion is a once concealed now revealed this is not a whodunit like a whodunit murder mystery this is more it was a divine secret kind of veiled or held back and now revealed in christ or in the, the reality of the future or in the church and here it is here's the mystery we shall not all sleep that's a another way of saying we won't all die as we saw in a previous study but we shall all be what we will all be changed. Now, this particular verse, we will not all sleep, but 
We shall be all be changed has been posted outside of baby nurseries and churches. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Those of you who have ever worked in a nursery setting, uh, that is not in its proper context. I will, I will admit that to you, but nonetheless, it resonates for those of you who have cared for the children, and we appreciate you guys. C.S. Lewis said, 100% of us die, and the percentage cannot be increased. I would say true. But there will be a group that doesn't die, and this is the mystery. And so look at the, end, the beginning of verse 51. Paul opens it with, Behold, this is the way to say, Look, listen, pay attention. I'm about to reveal to you a sacred secret, once concealed, now revealed. In the book of Daniel, Daniel says, There is a God in heaven who is the revealer of mysteries. And Nebuchadnezzar had that dream about the multi-metallic statue. And it was Daniel who was able to tell him what he dreamed by God's intervention and what the dream meant. And this is the idea. God is a mystery revealer. And he's going to take us behind the veil of death. You don't have to wonder what's going to happen. Your questions can be answered, uh, many of them in this chapter. What is the mystery? We will not all die. There's a generation, maybe comparable to Enoch, who will not die physically, but will rather be changed. Why would the living need to be changed? Because what is corruptible, says one writer, cannot stake a claim to what is incorruptible. Our present bodies, whether living or dead, are absolutely unfitted for the kingdom of God. Close quote. That is why the change is necessary. When Job said, uh, I will wait until my change comes, that's, a, that's kind of an Old Testament equivalent to what Paul is saying here. The Greek word here is alasso, and it means to undergo a transformation. You and I are going to get the makeover of makeovers at the second coming. And, you know, if you've ever seen those makeover shows, you know, are those like passe now? Are they not around anymore? I don't know. But I was kind of intrigued by them. You see somebody and they definitely needed a, a do-over. And they'd go away from their family for six months, you know. And they'd lose a bunch of weight and get a new hairdo. And then there would be the great revealing. You remember that? And all the family would be gathered there. And, and the, the music would play. And then the curtains open. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Well, there's going to be a church-wide makeover going on. It's going to happen at this, pretty much at the same time. And look at how quick it'll be. It'll be in a moment, 52, in a flash, says the NIV, in the twinkling of an eye. One writer said you could say in the bat of an eyelash. At the last trumpet, that's not Donald Trump right there. That, the last trump is not Donald I'll explain that in a second. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, what? Imperishable, there's your change. And we shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, probably faster than you could blink your eye. Have you ever had a moment where you realize that you blink a lot? All of you are going to do this now. Have you ever seen like, 
a news reporter and and you you don't pay attention to it but then sometimes you do and you watch how many times their eyes blink as they're talking please don't do it to me don't look at me anyway no, i'm just kidding um and isn't it amazing how many times your eyes just blink you don't even have to think about it it's just something that god's built into us and you think about how you know the fluids kind of keep your eye moist and all of that it's just amazing things we don't even think about how god designed our bodies and here's what's going to happen jesus is going to come and when he comes there's going to be this radical change and it's in concert with something called the last trumpet that trumpet is going to sound the dead will be raised imperishable and we the we is probably the living uh, just a side note paul is not saying that he thought he would be alive at the second coming although he may have wondered if he would but the we is just the living it would include whoever is alive at that point and so this is a second coming event and it will happen in a split split second it's atomos it's the idea of something so small it probably couldn't even be split um, it's the in the greek word for in the blink of an eye is bam in a microsecond if you will in a split second boom we shall be changed now i want you to think bible students with me god is going to do that he's going to do a resurrection and a rapture apparently from what i just read in a split second to everyone it involves you want to talk about power I mean, we are all in awe when we read the account of Lazarus coming out of the tomb, right? Lazarus, come forth. And we're like, that's power, baby, power. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb, right? Undo, his, undo the, the wrappings and I think he may say, give him something to eat there. At least he said that with a little girl, which I always love when Jesus says that. Give, give that person something to eat. Isn't that great? Don't you love that about Jesus? But I want you to think about the power of this moment. In, in a split second, in the blink of an eye, everybody's going to be made new. You want to talk about power? Some people say, could God have created the universe in six literal days? That's a lot of stuff to create in six literal days. Look, I'm not making fun of if you hold an old earth or a new earth, but look, he could do it in a, apparently in a moment if he wanted to. Because he's going to make everybody new and do a resurrection and a rapture in the blink of an eye. Our God is a powerful God. Can you imagine how much power it must take or it will take when that happens? To me, I just want to fall on my face and say, oh God, I have underestimated you with my little puny mind. Well, this is an incredible moment. And it's going to happen at something called the last trumpet. Now, I don't have a bunch of time to get into it, but let me tell you that there were a couple of primary uses for the trumpet in the Bible. The trumpet was used, and you can, you can imagine maybe a shofar blast here now. The trumpet was used to call a solemn assembly. So it was used to call the people of God to the presence of God and this would include the tabernacle and the temple. So if you ever heard a shofar blast, it would be a way of saying, people of God, assemble to the presence of God, and the people of God would come to the temple, if you will. 
to hear from the Lord. First use of the uh, trumpet blast, to call a solemn assembly. Second use of the trumpet was to go to war. There would be actually a war blast, and the trumpet would sound, and it kind of be this idea, the watchman's on the wall. His job is if he sees an invading army coming, he is to blow the warning blast. If he doesn't blow it, the blood of the people of that city is on his head. But if he blows the warning blast and they don't pay attention, it's on their head. That's the book of Ezekiel. That idea is also in the Acts 20, when Paul says, I did not hesitate to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I was a watchman. I'm telling you the truth. To call a solemn assembly at the blowing of the shofar or to go to war. This is the two things that will happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Think with me. The trumpet will blast and the people of God will be called to the presence of God in resurrection and rapture. And then God is going to go to war. He will rescue his people. They're not appointed to wrath. Pull them out, if you will, just like he did with Noah, putting him in the boat, or with Lot as he took them out. We can't destroy this city, Genesis 19, until you're out of here. Lot went out. And the wrath came down. In fact, Lot's family was getting out of town and it was coming down, right? And then Lot's wife, what did she do? She looked back and she became a substitute for what you put on your french fries. It's just a poor attempt at humor. She became a pillar of salt. That may be another way of saying she got caught up in the judgment What's interesting is in this area of the world, there's the Sea of Salt, and they have a salt formation, if you get a chance to go to Israel, that they call Lot's wife. There she is. <laughs> Would you turn to 1 Thessalonians 4? 1 Thessalonians 4. Imagine, you know, you get caught up in uh, the world and its allure and everything. And, and Lot's wife got so comfortable in Sodom, he, apparently he thought he could handle it, but his family couldn't. Watch out where you pitch your tent, brothers and sisters. 1 Thessalonians 4, look at verse 13. We, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, about those who are asleep or those who have died that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 14, 15, that we who are alive and remain, you could say alive and survive until the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep or died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, with a shout, so there's more than just the trumpet, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Here's the same thing happening in 1 Corinthians 15. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, there's your rapture, together with them with the dead who were raised in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, what should we do? We should comfort one another with these words. In Matthew 24, Jesus says something similar. Let's flip over there. Taking scripture with scripture. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew 24, Jesus was asked, 
his apostles asked him, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus gives a whole series of things to look for, some that apply to the first century, some that definitely apply to the events surrounding his second coming in the end of the age. And he says these words, this is Matthew 24, 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. Here's the cosmic sign signaling his second coming. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will appear in the sky. That is likely a darkened sky. If this is literal, all the natural lights have gone out, so the glory of God is going to be uh, just incredible here on display. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with, of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. There's that trumpet again. And they will gather together, the angels will, his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. That's your rapture in my view. Now he says, now learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender, put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. I believe the generation he's talking about is the one that will see the last day's uh, events back to uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I, I don't have time to develop that, but I've taught that in other uh, contexts. So 1 Corinthians 15, you can see this... Uh, Trumpet, Joel 2.1 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. So when the day of the Lord is about to commence or is happening, there will be a trumpet, uh, there will be the voice of the archangel, and this will be the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will come to rescue his people, and to judge a Christ-rejecting world. Back in verse uh, 53 of 1 Corinthians 15, for this perishable must put on, we have clothing analogies here, must put on the imperishable. This mortal, those of us liable to die, that's all the human race, must put on, there's again your clothing imagery, immortality, deathlessness, undying everlasting life is the idea of immortality not to die again this change is from mortal to immortal from perishable to imperishable and here the image moves into the analogy of putting on clothing so it's just a way for us to understand it on a human plane and this gives us a connection between what dies and what rises because it's the putting on of clothing is it goes on what was there, but the clothing makes the individual new, if you will. We don't push that too far, but that's what Paul is talking about. And then he says in 54, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on uh, immortality, then will come about or then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. This is when that promise, that saying, will be realized. Where does that saying come from? For the sake of time, these are the two verses. 
This is Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. I want you to write it down for your notes. I would encourage you to look at this later. It's just so beautiful, and here's what it says. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, this is the NIV, the finest of wines. And he says, And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which stretched over all the nations. He will swallow it up. He will get rid of it. And this is what it is. He will swallow up, Isaiah 25, death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Hosea 13, 14 is the other text from which this comes. As we'll, I'll mention it to you in a moment. But death is going to be swallowed up. I want you to imagine something being swallowed up. This is the idea of not just kind of beat around or uh, not just uh, shot, if you will, but swallowed up, taken down forever. And that's why Paul begins to taunt death in verse 55. He says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You can look at Hosea 13, 14. Death has been uh, defanged. And this is why Paul can say, you are not winning anymore. I am so tired of death winning. How many uh, victories does death celebrate every single day? It's almost like death's in the corner just going, <laughs> there's another one, there's another one, there's another one, there's another one. And you know, we are, we've laid loved ones to rest. For those of you who are animals, animal lovers, you, you lose a beloved pet. Some of you have watched a, a loved one as they're taking their last breaths and you're like, this is, this is sad. It's tragic. Hosea 13, 14 says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues, Hosea 13, 14. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. Hosea 13, 14, uh, scholars say Paul is using, used like a free translation or free writing to quote the essence of these verses and in some way even to turn them around. Here's the question. Are you on the winning team? If you're on Jesus' team, you're going to win. Oh, death, where is your sting? I have a swimming pool at home and... Uh, Lots of times I'll be in the pool, I might be cleaning it, and I'll watch a bee uh, fly into the water. I don't know why they do this, but if I net my pool, I've, there's dead bees like galore. They go in, I think they try to pick up the water, and they, they get stuck. And not, it's not just bees, so I'll be in there, and I'll, I'll feel bad for the bee. So I'll take a leaf or my skimmer, and I'll pull the bee out. So I did this the other day. I was like, oh, you know, poor little bee, <laughs> right? So I, I pulled him out, and I put him on the pavement next to the pool, 
And I went along with my uh, duties, and all of a sudden, I'm walking by, and I stepped on the bee, and it stung me. And I was like, you dirty rascal! It was my fault, but go with the imagery for a second. And he stung me! And I was like, I saved you, and you stung me? And he was like, but you stepped on me. <laughs> what was I supposed to do? It's automatic. Anyway. <laughs> you guys take this for what it's worth. And it may not be worth much. <laughs> but I was thinking to myself, you, you guys can test if this was from the Holy Spirit. I, I had this thought of, that's what people do to me, says the Lord. I rescue them, and then they sting me. That's my bee story. Anyway. See, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. What does that verse mean? Well, we've heard, learned a little bit about the sting, and, and the idea of sting here is a bee sting or even a scorpion sting. And we know how painful, you know, a little creature and cause us a bunch of pain, and some people are allergic and, and all of that. The sting of death is sin. It's, it's injected into all of us. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. The power of sin is the law. Paul says in Romans, I would have not known what sin was except through the law. The law says don't commit adultery, but it also includes don't look lustfully. It says don't murder, but it also includes don't hate. Don't hate without a cause. It, it includes don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't steal. It doesn't matter what the value of the item is. It says don't steal. Uh, don't bear false witness. Don't lie. The law reveals sin. Amen? None of you have kept the Ten Commandments. I can guarantee it. We've all broken them over and over again. And the law is a schoolmaster to drive me to Jesus. See, the law can't save me. If there was a law that could produce life, Galatians 3, a law would have been given. But a law, the law can't produce life. The law brings the light of sin. And the law drives you to the Savior. If you have a friend who doesn't believe they need Jesus, you might want to share the Ten Commandments with them. Say, you think, you, you think you've been a good person? Have you ever told a lie? You ever lusted? You ever taken the name of the Lord in vain? See, what it does is it takes this idea of I can be good enough. You can't. The law drives us to Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law. He made, God made him, God the Father made him who knew no sin to become sin that in him we might become the righteousness of, of God. Jesus took the sting of death. He tasted death for each one of us. Some of us, when we contemplate a loved one dying, we think, Lord, if I could just be in their place, if, I, if it could be me, You've maybe had a sick, sick loved one, maybe a child, and you're like, if I could take their place, and we can't. But God did. Jesus did. He said, Father, I will take the sting. Even though he was totally innocent and fulfilled the law perfectly, he still took the sting. He took the poison. He took the injection so that you wouldn't have to taste death, so that I wouldn't have to taste Death And this makes Paul break into praise. He says, but thanks be to God, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, and this is what it should do for us. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us what? The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God. Thank God that 
We don't have to stand in a cemetery and say, that's it. Thank God that we don't have to consider this crazy world where life can seem so and be so unfair. The mass shootings that we've seen, the crazy stuff that we've seen. Thank God that that's not the end of the story. See, Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you are healed. And that is talking primarily about salvation healing. You're saved. Do you know him? Well, this is the final verse, and this is the application, uh, the additional application. There's plenty there, but here's, here it is for the church. Therefore, in light of everything that Paul just said, to sum up the entire chapter, and especially this section, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, church, you are loved in light of this doctrine, in light of the fact that death doesn't have the final word, in light of the fact that we have the victory in Jesus, church, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And please know that your labor, your toil, is not in vain in the Lord. It's never in vain in the Lord. Paul says earlier in the chapter, verse 10 of chapter 15, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Maybe this is also an encouragement for Paul to say, not one thing I've ever done for the Lord, not one scar that I have on my back, Paul might say. Not one risk that I took to get the gospel to somebody. Not one journey that was arduous and difficult. Not one uh, relationship that I risked to get the good news of the gospel is ever in vain in the Lord. Not one thing that you do for the Lord is in vain. But let me tell you, there are many things that you do in life that are in vain. Amen? My golf game. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy if you enjoy golf. <laughs> right now, I'm not enjoying golf. You can probably tell. Are you abounding in the work of the Lord are you, or are you floundering? David cried, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. O oh Lord, make me steadfast, immovable, verse 58. Help me always abound in your work. Let's pray. Help me always abound in your work, Lord, knowing that not one thing I've ever done or ever will do for the kingdom of God is ever vanity. It's never in vain. Solomon said, man, there's so much vanity. There's so much emptiness. So many strange, difficult questions. But here's what we can know. And thank you, Father, for this truth. Not one thing we ever do for the Lord will be in vain. There will be a, a reward. There will be a blessing. And we don't know what that's all going to look like, Lord, but we do know this. When you come, we're going to see you as you are. We're going to be changed. There's going to be rewards for the church. There's going to be incredible worship and celebration. 
And we're going to inherit a kingdom that we can't even fathom. And this change, you're going to do in a split second. At least the resurrection and rapture part. And it's amazing. But you keep your head and heart bowed. If you don't know Jesus or maybe you've backslidden from your walk with him. If you're a believer and you just needed some hope that there is life beyond the grave, this is true. You can take it to the bank. You don't have to fear. Father, we confess we all are fearful. We all have our moments and sometimes our seasons where anxiety and fear and questioning the promises of God it happens to all of us. We all can have our doubts, especially in difficult moments especially of moments like Job went through where he wondered, even though he knew you. Well, Father, my prayer is a Romans 15, 13 prayer for this group. Now may the God of hope fill you with all peace and joy in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is our hope, and I'm asking you right now, if you don't know him, to pray something this simple but profound. Jesus, pray it if it's you. Would you save me? I want to know you. I want to know the power of your resurrection. I want to know what it means to serve you in your kingdom and even have challenging things happen to me so that I live for what really matters. I turn away from my sin. I repent of it. I place my trust in you, your finished work on the cross, your resurrection from the dead. Be my Lord be my Savior, be my God, be my King. Change me from the inside out. I want to know what it means to follow the one who made me. I want to have hope. Lord, for those who are praying, even in the quietness of their heart, I pray that you would minister hope to them. For believers, I pray that they would be encouraged in their faith. And I thank you for this precious congregation the impact that they are making in their circles and spheres of influence. May they continue to abound in the work of the Lord. And we just thank you so much for loving us so incredibly. And thank you for our future, which is so hopeful. We pray all of this and we thank you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.